Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 73 being recorded on Tuesday, February 28th, 2017. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason and Scott Show listeners. Uh, we have a pretty exciting treat for you here today. Uh, on February 1st, 2017, there was a report put out by a Wall Street analyst where he simultaneously downgraded about 10 apparel manufacturers in a report called Softline Wholesale Channel Must Evolve or Die. Um, here it is about a month later, and in the last 30 days, there's been what can only be described as a bloodbath for, for soft lines and retailers like Target and JCPenney. Uh, it's been a really tough time, so that, that turned out to be very prescient. The analyst that wrote that report is Omar Saad. He's a soft lines analyst with Evercore ISI, and we're excited to have a special treat for you to have him on this show this week. Omar's coverage universe includes over 35 companies. I won't read them all, but some of the highlights would be Abercrombie, Guess, Fossil, Deckers, JCPenney, Puma, uh, Michael Kors, Kohl's, Ralph Lauren, Nordstrom. A lot of these may sound familiar to longtime listeners. Haynes, uh, Macy's, Foot Locker, Lululemon, VF Corp, Under Armour, L Brands, Adidas, Nike. You, you get the drift. As a Wall Street firm, Evercore is required to follow very strict disclosure rules, and I need to read this very brief statement. An employee, director, or consultant of Evercore ISI or one of its affiliates, but not a research analyst or a member of a research analyst household, is a director of the subject company, Tiffany & Company. In this podcast, Jason and I are going to make frequent references to Omar's report, which I'll call Evolve or Die, and we're going to make that available via a link in the show notes, or you can go to the jasonandscott.com website to look at the PDF. I strongly recommend you have that as kind of a companion to this podcast. This is one of the first podcasts where we've had some uh, some visual aids, so uh, you know I think it, you'll find that very helpful. We'll try to reference page numbers as we go through some of the highlights here. And with all that housekeeping behind us, welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, Omar. Thanks, guys. Uh, it's great to be here. Yeah, before we uh, jump right into the weeds, uh, tell us a little bit about how you came to be an analyst and, and how you landed on uh, soft lines and luxury. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I certainly didn't kind of start my life or even college or even post-college with kind of this kind of idea to be a retail Wall Street analyst covering the retail space. Um, it came from a, a family of academics um, and was kind of encouraged to go t- towards more of the business route. And so I studied accounting in college. Um, Got my CPA uh, post uh, undergrad and worked in Washington D.C. for five years for Arthur Anderson and kind of realized that accounting path wasn't actually kind of the long-term path for me and went back to business school. Um, got my MBA at Kellogg, where um, not only do they have a strong you know finance and strategy program, but a lot of great marketing um, programs as well. Um, and kind of in the summer internship process there, discovered this idea of instead of analyzing you know, a small part of one company, which is a lot of what we did in, in my accounting, time in accounting, uh, this idea of analyzing industries and companies and trying to predict winners and losers and you know, watching for those tectonic seismic shifts and, and you know, changes in the industrial landscape. And uh, I was kind of like you know, asking all the recruiters and the, the professors, you know, what, 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 what field can I kind of pursue these uh, types of activities? And they're like, 
uh, often responded, you know, be, become a sell side analyst and, and on Wall Street, and you can either be in an, on the investor side, the buy side, or the sell side, where you're writing reports and issuing recommendations and stocks and uh, on certain industries. So, and you become an industry expert, and that was really appealing to me. Got a summer internship at Lehman Brothers. Um, it's kind of funny. The first two companies I worked for, Arthur Anderson and the Lehman Brothers, neither of them are actually around today. That's a pretty <laughs> rare uh, mem- memorabilia for both of those places. But um, uh, and, you know, randomly, you know, that was around the tech tech period, um, early two thousands when I did my internship at Lehman Brothers. All the interns they gave you a kind of list of sectors to choose from, uh, and kind of rank order your top three sectors you want to work in for the summer. And everybody was putting down all the tech and uh, internet sectors at the time. And there's this kind of one interesting sector that, that had an interesting name. I, I recall, I think it was textiles, uh, uh, textiles and apparel or something like that. Um, or textiles and apparel manufacturers. I'm like, Oh, that's, I bet that's more interesting than you think. And of course it turned out to be, you know, brands like Nike and, um, Ralph Lauren and V, you know, VF Corp, which owns North Face, a bunch of cool brands. And so it just kind of, you know, got my internship in that sector, uh, enjoyed it and came back to work full time and kind of been in retail as an analyst. So that was, you know, 17 years ago at this point, um, no longer at Lehman Brothers. Um, uh, thankfully, not all the firms that I've worked for are now bankrupt and, you know, kind of enjoying my time today at Evercore ISI, kind of continuing to pursue, you know, retail truths, if you will, and how they reflected in the stock market. Yeah, the one thing um, that I thought was really interesting is I, I follow all the internet guys, and they really kind of don't look at the retail side of the house. And I follow a lot of retail analysts, and they don't really kind of get the e-commerce side of the house. So one of the things I thought was really neat about your report is you really kind of had a unique visibility into both sides. And, and I don't find that actually a lot. You know, they people tend to, you know, if they're a retail analyst or, or even a brand analyst, they're really focused on square footage and same store sales, and they really kind of almost just ignore. Or there may be a paragraph about the online thing, but they don't really kind of grok it to the level you seem to. So I, I thought I found that refreshing that you kind of could swim between both worlds pretty easily. Uh, well, that's a really flattering uh, compliment. Thank you very much. Um, you know, I'd say about three or four years ago, we started to see some strange things happening in the retail sector. You know, the traditional uh, metrics and, and, and predictors of consumer spending and how, how retail numbers would look and how the companies were, would fare. You know, those traditional predictors, uh, unemployment and job security and wages and, um, you know, stock market prices and asset prices and things like that, especially the high end, they were a little bit more focused on more of the high end parts of retail in, in my specific universe. But I started noticing, noticing a few years ago that these predictors, you know, were saying spending, you know, post the crisis, Spending should be a lot stronger. Asset prices were performing great. You know, unemployment was coming down. Job security, wages, uh, a lot of kind of gas prices were pretty low, um, and they just weren't really bearing out. And the, and the retail numbers didn't look right. And it's really when smartphones became ubiquitous. You know, kind of crossed over that tipping point where um, they really were in everybody's pocket. In you know, in terms of the industrialized world. Um, so, you know, I, I, I'd say we spent a lot of the, you know, since that, it's kind of that coming to that realization that, wow, there's a digital revolution going on here and it's having a massive effect on these retail companies and not just the competitive landscape, but also consumer behavior and what people spend money on and how they spend it and you know, how that's changing just as a result of coming, kind of having this supercomputer in our pocket with access to infinite products and services, you know, at our fingertips from anywhere at any time. Um, there's just, there's just profound changes, I think, in the industry landscape as a result of this 
digital revolution, if you will. And so, so, so I guess we've been really thinking about it and, and studying it and trying to understand it. And it's really hard to, 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 to figure it all out. And we certainly haven't cracked the kind of all these codes, but it's certainly been an area of focus for us over the last three, four years when we really started to see that um, that uh, dichotomy and where, in terms of where the, the retail predictors were telling us that, that the results should be and where they were. Yeah. Have you been um, surprised by the response to to this report? I, I saw it because I, I have to profess I wasn't following you that closely until I saw, I think it was on CNBC or something it mentioned. And uh, it's come up several times since then. It seems to be kind of, it, for me at least, it's gotten quite a bit of buzz. Is, have you been surprised by, by that from this report? Yeah, no, it, it, it um, I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of funny. We've been thinking about this report for at least a year. And, you know, I, I, when I first got into the sector, I got, I started, I started covering just the apparel, uh, and te- as I mentioned, the textile and apparel companies, so the Nikes and Ralph Lauren and the VF Corps and Philips Van Heusen's of the world, you know, Liz Claiborne back in the day and Jones Apparel Group and some of these guys it was, it was a small space. Um, and, you know, when I first started covering the space, I kind of, you know, th- these stocks went on like a multi-year tear. They were great stocks for six, seven years, eight years, you know, huge, huge returns. And I kind of made my name in these brand stocks. And so it was kind of, you know, I was haranguing over it for a long time as I really feel the brands have incredible value, underlying value, and that the digital revolution should really help unlock the value of these content producing innovation driven brand companies. And to kind of downgrade them as we cut that kind of come to the conclusion that, wow, the digital revolution isn't going to be great for these companies, at least not in the near and medium term. You know, ultimately, long term, you know, however we define, I think will be things will be fine for these brand companies. But you know, to come to come to that realization took about a year for us before we kind of really came to through it, came to terms with it, and published the report. So, um, yeah, so it did make a lot of ways. You know, especially in the financial community, where we you know probably are known for you know recommending these stocks over the years. And but it also made ways in the corporate community. I was very interested to see how many you know we did our webinar around the support. How many executives from from retail man retail companies were 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 listening in and downloading the report and um, asking for copies of it and having to be having it be forwarded, et cetera. So yeah, it, it did make a little bit more waves than we thought. But you know, it also took us a long time to get to that point too. Yeah. Do uh, out of curiosity, like do do the companies you cover like do they reach out directly and and. Uh... Like, how do they respond to to these kind of reports? Um, you know, a lot of like like not not a lot of official you know, yep. so these brand companies, especially the the ones we downgrade, not a lot of official responses. And 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 look, they're dealing with a lot of change right now. I mean, their world is changing around them. The channels they sell through, the behavior of the end consumer. Um, you know, not to mention all the kind of uh, you know other structural macro changes going on with new administration and import potential for import taxes and. So on and so forth, but you know, there, there, there's this really, con- this is a really confusing time, I think, for for retail and brands and you know the way things have worked for you know basically a hundred years since Sears and Roebuck kind of first started produce, producing that catalog and collecting a bunch of manufacturers across a bunch of different categories and putting in a catalog and selling the goods. You know, this is this is this is a major change. So um, I think there's a lot of interest. There hasn't been a lot of pushback or kind of embracing of the conclusions we came to this report. But there certainly hasn't been a lot of pushback or denials either, saying, "Wow, you're nuts, Omar. You know, we're not seeing this at all in our business." I mean, you know, the best from the best brands we cover to some of the weaker brands we cover, I think there's they're, they're all kind of facing a lot of these same issues. And and there's more of an interest, you know, I think in trying to figure out, you know, how much of what he's saying is on point, and you know, where can what can we learn from this, and where, what what else can we, you know, other elements can we add to the the conclusions here to really figure out what's going, what's happening, and where 
or we should drive this bus and, and keep it in the right direction. Yeah, I'm I'm always curious sort of how self-aware um, these companies are, because as you mentioned, some of them are 100 plus years old and they've been following a playbook that's worked pretty well for them for a long time. Um, do, do you get a sense that like, you know, they're, hey, that there wasn't necessarily any new news for, for them in your report? Or do you think that there are some of them that are still a little bit in denial about about how meaningful this this disruption we're all living through is? Well, I mean, I, no, I think there's, I think it's a mix. Like some of them are, you know, kind of nodding their heads like, yeah, this is on, he's onto something here. There's things are changing and a lot of these old paradigms aren't, aren't relevant anymore, aren't valuable to the end consumer anymore. And you know, I think there are some, you know, channels where, um, you know, there's a bit of denial and, and, and to accept the conclusions of the report is kind of like accepting, um, you know, kind of the lack of value for you as a kind of a pure intermediary uh, middleman type business model. So I think there are some, some areas where the management teams don't really yeah. kind of come to the same conclusions here because they can't. Yeah, for, for sure. As an, as an entire, as a complete corporate entity, uh, an interesting um, sort of dimension, a, a number of the companies you cover uh, have had senior execs on our show, um, but, but almost uh, invariably the senior exec that's going to be on our show is that, that most senior digital or that most senior direct to consumer exec inside of that big wholesale brand. And so it's, it's kind of interesting. I think, you know, a lot of our guests uh, have expressed similar themes and concerns and challenges. Um, but I would, I would suspect that the majority of them feel like they're the, the sort of opposition voice within their much larger uh, corporate entities. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure. I mean, when you think about, how much money, you know, all of these companies, the department stores, so the third-party you know, multi-brand retailers, the department stores, and sporting goods retailers, and um, the brand companies, and the manufacturing, the huge manufacturing engine in, in the Far East and other parts of the world, you know, how much profit has been produced, you know, kind of following the traditional algorithm, which is designer uh, or brand, you know, designs and creates product ideas, and then figures out how to produce it and source it and sell it and scale. And, you know, the retailers figure out how much, to, you know, how much demand there really is and kind of edit the assortments and send that to market through their channels. And the consumer comes to stores and spends all this time looking around to see what they want and see what they like and see what works and doesn't work. And, you know, that's just being turned on its head. And, you know, that's the way retail has been happening for, you know, by and large for, for, for many, many decades, but certainly for since the era of the malls, you know, 30, 40 years ago. So, um, I mean, you're talking about a lot of mouths that have been very well fed for a very long time through one manner. And all of a sudden that, that, that they're not getting fed the same as they used to and as they're used to being fed. And so yeah, I think it's one of the reasons you see so much management turnover in a lot of these companies right now, you know, longtime executives, super seasoned, super experienced, you know, leaving the industry, retiring, you know, at, you know, not necessarily really old ages. Um, and, and then you see, you know, situations where new, new executives are brought in to turn around a company and, um, you know, Ralph Horn, for example, and, you know, that doesn't work out. And, you know, to me, this is emblematic of the, all the underlying pressures and different forces that are pushing and pulling against each other in the industry that makes it so difficult to operate in right now. You know, I think one of the effects is, you know, people leave in the industry and, you know, I don't think the industry is attracting necessarily the same talent that it used to. Um, you know, a lot of the talent is obviously going towards the tech and digital industries. And these are things that I think a lot of these companies have to think about and face too. Absolutely. Let, let's jump right into it. Um, you sort of one of the marquee takeaways from, from your whole report was this, 
this notion that uh, that there's a strong uh, trend to eliminating middlemen, and obviously a, a lot of the the companies you're following and that are mentioned in the report um, have have their economic model tied closely to middlemen. And you you kind of highlighted these four big trends that were causing that that disruption of middlemen. And I, you know you you sort of talked about. Uh, uh, consumer transparency and having better visibility to price selection, things like that. You you talked a lot about uh, celebrities and bloggers and social networks becoming the the uh, tastemakers as opposed to the traditional merchant that had this you know black magic that they got to be the tastemakers. Um, you you talked a lot about uh, shifting of how brands are built and how you know today brands might be built a lot more based on their social networks than than traditional marketing, uh, and then you you talked about how convenience has been totally redefined in the in the category. Um, the you know do you like uh, I don't know uh, each one of those individually feels like a pretty big disruption, and so then you you apply all four of those at the same time to an industry, um, and this this doesn't feel like. In a uh, evolutionary change that that you know retailers just need to to react to, it feels like an actual true disruption that causes many of these businesses to have to reinvent themselves to to succeed. Is that how you're looking at it as well? Yeah, I, I absolutely nail on the head from my perspective. Um, and, and by the way, those four kind of those four points, um, you know, the consumer visibility into price you know, through their smartphones and, you know, how the tastemakers are changing and how brands are built through social instead of kind of print and traditional media, and it, as well as convenience, the, the notion of convenience changing. Um, the, the, those are those are the four kind of dynamics that I think directly affect this idea of a multi-layered uh, middleman business model with manufacturers and distributors and wholesalers and retailers and so on and so forth. I mean, and there are you know, almost infinite, more infinitely, uh, you know, more disruptive factors. I think that affect the industry and consumer behavior as a result of digital that I'm not even addressing in this report. This is really just those factors that drive at this kind of traditional chain of of, of middlemen. Yeah. So that I was actually curious about that. So so you know, these four things I look at and I go, man, you're following soft goods in particular, but but these four things are probably having a, a much more global impact on a much broader range of businesses. Um, than than just the soft goods and luxury folks. Um, when we talk to to some of the, the the brands that you're covering, like they tend to go to these industry specific disruptions, and so we hear a lot like, "Oh man, consumers are just spending less on apparel than they used to, or a smaller share of their wallet, or or you know they're less brand conscious than they used to be, or you know they're fewer visits to malls than they used to be." Um, and and unless I missed it, like you didn't really highlight any of those traditional challenges as, as reasons for sort of um, concern for, for some of these brands. Yeah, no, I think this is a universal effect. Like when I look at the economy, the global economy, you know, I worry for middlemen everywhere. Um, You know, there, it's not just retail. (laughs) I mean, retail has got a lot of middlemen kind of business models that have built up over the years of, you know, the, the kind of the global economy tries to move goods and services you know, from where they're produced to where they're consumed. Um, but, you know, I just look at my industry, the financial services industry. I mean, it's certainly happening all the time. The way information is disseminated, um, you know, even as a sell side analyst, you, you know, the content we produce and, uh, you know, a lot of ways we're middlemen. Um, and you just see the pressure, the pricing pressure in the industry, 
Um, you say the kind of the behaviors of, of money managers changing, um, the trade, you know, the, 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 the kind of cents per share, uh, in terms of trading revenues, it's all being compressed and it's not that dissimilar, you know, big index funds coming in with the absolute rock bottom prices like Vanguard, almost like the Amazon, if you will, kind of going in and shaking things up all around. You know, I think it's happening everywhere in the economy. Um, you know, I just happen to specialize and focus on the retail sector, but I mean, look at media. I mean, I kind of use the media algorithm a lot when I think about content and distribution and you know, the algorithms are changing because, you know, media, it's actually happening a lot faster because we're not talking about, you know, something that needs to be, you know, you know, picked from, from, from cotton plants and, you know, spun into yarn and milled into fabric and then cut and sewn into clothing and, you know, that, that, that's all digital. A lot, a, lot of the dis, a lot of the content is actually digitally distributed. So the, the, the paradigm changed really fast. And you can almost, you kind of use media as a, as a, as, as a long-term predictor of how things might change in retail. So uh, I, I don't just think about retail you know, as the only area. That's just, that just happens to be where I specialize in. Cool. So, so one of the, just kind of to get somewhat tactical with it, one of the interesting things that you talk about in the report is you have kind of the traditional model where there's, there's something manufactured for $10 and then the brand, uh, it costs, you know, they mark it up to 15 for the brand. Then the brand marks it up to 30 for the retailer. The retailer marks it up to 60 for the consumer. Um, so you have, you know, whatever that work, you know, that's a six X kind of a thing in there. Uh, and then you talk about, you know, if you take out these middlemen and you go directly from the manufacturer, the manufacturer and the brand are now together, you still have that cost of 10 bucks, but now you can sell it for 40 and you still, you know, you still have a, a much higher markup as the the brand going direct to consumer. Um, then you also introduce this concession model. Tell us, tell us kind of, um, give us a layman's kind of introduction to that model. I, I think that's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, it, we call it concession or marketplace. It's actually pretty common in Asia. Uh, Asian department stores are, 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 you know, the vast majority, or if not all of them, are kind of more of the concession model where the department store acts more or less as a real estate um, uh, company subletting its space, but subletting its space not for a fixed rent, subletting it to the to the different brands or, or, or you know specialized retailers that want to sell in the confines of the department store. They they sublet it for a small fixed rent and generally you know a, a variable kind of commission as a percentage of sales. And the brand um, you know has their own space. They build it out. They own the inventory. They own the employees. They have their own cash registers there. That's kind of the traditional physical version of a concession. Um, and, you know, you've seen, you know, in a lot of ways, Asia is much more advanced than the West because, you know, it industrialized at a much later stage. So you hear about kind of smartphone penetration and usage and sophistication uh, in places like China um, are, you know, well ahead of ours because, you know, basically everyone there is growing up in the cell phone era. Uh, in, this, uh, yeah, in terms of the, the industrialized uh, parts of society there. So um, very advanced, very sophisticated. And you see it in, in Alibaba and Tmall, you know, you know, all these brands that, that, that are trying to access the Chinese consumer, they don't want to sell on Alibaba, which is, a you know, this huge kind of high volume marketplace. Um, so they developed the Tmall concept, which is a pure concession model, essentially the same as the Japanese and Asian department stores, but online where the brand Nike, for example, might have its own, uh, will have its own kind of marketplace website within the T-Mall framework. So Nike gets access to all the T-Mall customers, the Chinese consumers who trust and rely and use on use T-Mall and rely on it for its convenience and and, and reliability. Um, and so Nike gets access to all that traffic flow, and 
and T-Mall gets to carry Nike and, and, and share in their revenues. You know, they don't have to own the inventory. They don't have to have merchants to decide, you know, wh- which products to buy, how many, which sizes, which colors, all the you know, complex things that retailers need to think about. Um, but they drive traffic to their site, and Nike gets to, gets to take advantage of that in, in exchange for, a, you know, presumably some variable uh, fee uh, percentage of sales. And, you know, that, that, that's, the, that's the concession marketplace model in a nutshell that I think eventually the, tr- the Western uh, retail markets are going to evolve to, and it's 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 not clear to me exactly how it's going to unfold and at what pace. But I don't think it's anything but inevitable at this point. When I think about those traditional pricing algorithms and, and just how they're not really relevant to consumers anymore in terms of the value they create for consumers. Yeah, it's really interesting. In in Asia, kind of their physical retail started that way, and then digital went to replicate it. So, you know, T Mall is a, is a is kind of a clone of what's happening in their physical world. Where in the U.S., I, I, my day job is to really study Amazon and their marketplace really closely, um, and it's it's gravitating very quickly to this concession model. It was really more kind of like retailers selling on Amazon, but now they're quickly dying out as they get eliminated, and now you're seeing brands kind of going more direct through that third party marketplace. Um, but we, you know, we're seeing it in the digital world on Amazon, you know, is, is it's probably a hundred billion dollar, you know, so it's really, really large, but we don't really see it much in the physical world. It's kind of interesting. What, what, you know, do you, how, do you have examples of it happening in the physical world or when are we going to see that? Or do malls just kind of morph to this to survive at some point? I mean, I, you know, I think some of the department stores are toying with some of these ideas. Um, you know, Macy's, for example, su- licenses out its sneaker business and has finish line uh, operated sneaker business for 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 for, for Macy's um, in the inside the Macy's stores. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, Macy's doesn't need to know the inventory. They don't have the, they don't take that risk. They don't decide how much of, of what um, or what the cool shoes are. You know, finish line takes all its expertise in the sneaker industry. Um, and just executes and operates it. And Macy's collects this nice kind of riskless uh, 100% gross margin fee from, from Finish Line. Now, in the case of Finish Line, to me, that's a bit, um, it's kind of moving in the right direction and moving in the wrong direction at the same time because Finish Line <laughs> is, awesome. isn't it, yeah. it, is in and of itself another middleman retailer. So now you're just adding another middleman to the equation. Um, which I don't think makes it more efficient or more valuable for the consumer, but right, right idea. Not maybe not quite the right execution, but um, you know I think they've also. I mean, look, they've done things with the luxury brands, you know, and the Bloomingdale's and some of the flagships. You know, Louis Vuitton doesn't do any wholesale, so to get Louis Vuitton to come into your store as a department store, basically you have to sublet an entire store within the store with its own walls and doors and everything. Or so because Louis Vuitton only uh, sells direct to consumers; they don't do any wholesale whatsoever. So um, you know, I think they've signed some deals with Hugo Boss. Actually, Macy's has, I think, with seven locations to, to convert it to more of a concession model um, in, in seven of the top locations where Hugo Boss will own the inventory. You know, the employees running that area will, will be Hugo Boss employees and, and so on and so forth. So, you know, I think you're seeing some really small steps to do, uh, try some things in that area. I think it's going to come down to Amazon personally because you haven't seen Amazon really sign and, and come to an arrangement with a you know, meaningful brand that I'm aware of whereby um, that brand has a kind of marketplace within the Amazon website. That brand would get access to all of the Amazon traffic, especially that prime traffic, that really heavy Amazon spender. Um, and Amazon would be able to say it sells, you know, Nike from Nike as opposed to, you know, the random kind of 3P sellers that are on there now. 
um, Joe Sushak might be the guy you're buying your Nikes from if you're buying Nikes on Amazon. It's not from Nike. Um, I think there's some hurdles to getting this done. Nike's logistics and, and the brand's logistics might not be up to par uh, in terms of what Amazon expects to kind of reach that, to, to execute against that prime um, uh, convenience proposition. But to me, when Amazon f- figures out how to do concessions in a real way with brands, that's going to be the kind of the, the, the beacon, I think, that leads the retail industry forward in terms of evolving from the traditional wholesale model to more of that marketplace or concession model. Yeah, and uh, Under Armour actually is, has a pretty big presence on Amazon. Um, I'll send you a link, but they're, you know, they, it's kind of funny. Brands have a very binary approach. So, like Nike has a no Amazon kind of a strategy, uh, they won't let any authorized resellers saw in there uh, either um so it's all kind of this leakage uh but under armor has a, a brand store on amazon and you know i don't know if it meets your definition of concession but they're it's a pretty big part of their strategy um that they have there so that may be one i'll, I'll send you a link so you can look at it yeah no i, I certainly i'm certainly aware of it uh, you know to my knowledge that's a wholesale business where they're they're wholesaling to amazon at the same prices or similar prices they would wholesale the dicks or or, or um uh, any kind of third-party retailer that, that Under Armour sell to, um, and and to the extent where Under Armour is fulfilling and selling direct, I don't think it's prime eligible. It's that kind of key missing ingredient. Is that is that that combination where you get the marketplace and you get to have your own space and you get to merchandise it and visualize it and do the kind of branding that you want on that space, but it still resides within Amazon, and you get access to that prime customer. Amazon gets to say they sell under, you know, gets to sell Under Armour, not just, you know, Under Armour 3P, but Under Armour, like the best and, you know, the latest and greatest fresh, you know, Steph Curry, you know, four or five or whatever, the latest Steph Curry shoes. And, um, and, and get some kind of riskless, pure gross margin fee out of it as well. So that's the nut that hasn't been cracked in my, in my opinion. Um, I don't know that Under Armour or any brand has the logistics that would stand up to what, you know, Amazon standards are in terms of, for prime uh, uh, eligibility, and that's mm-hmm. where the you know that's the golden goose is that prime eligibility. That's when you can really start to access a massively growing customer in terms of how much you're spending and how many prime customers there are. Yeah, I think you'd be surprised. Some some of the um, there's a fair number of brands that are 3P. Um, some of them use FBA to get prime eligibility, so they they kind of say, hey, we're it's important enough to us to do it. And then um, Amazon has this whole thing. It used to be called Merchant Fulfilled Prime Eligible, and now it's seller fulfilled prime um and a fair number of brands that we work with are in that program and their stuff shows up as prime eligible so so it, it's happening it just isn't maybe is like um you know it's not on the front page of amazon in kind of a true yeah. concession kind of where you can see like a you know a brand store per se but it, it's it's uh a lot of brands are experimenting with it or or pretty serious about it yeah, I mean, there's no doubt. I mean, it, it, even Nike is in advanced negotiations with Amazon, I'm sure, you know, trying to figure out a way. Nike's not, um, I think, going to cut off their nose to spite their face. You know, even companies at that level, I think, are really going to have to consider this, especially when you start to look at traffic. I mean, you look at everywhere you look in the physical world, negative traffic, negative traffic in malls, negative traffic in trip centers, negative traffic in A malls, negative traffic in B and C malls. Um, where's their positive traffic? Amazon Prime, I mean, massive amounts of positive traffic. And so, you know, they're not dumb and they want to go where the consumer's going and, you know, they have to figure out a way to do it. Um, I, you know, I think that, it, again, if you could really get a true kind of website within the website and, and access that, you know, where it's the, the merchandising and the visual uh, branding is kind of more in control of the brand. Um, and it's, a, you know, the brand owns the inventory. 
Uh, Amazon doesn't have to decide how many of what color and what size to buy. Like now you're really moving in the right direction. I think that could you know, start to affect some massive change in the industry. It'd be fantastic. Yeah, it, it is fascinating. And, uh, you know, I, I think if you look at the majority of big brands right now, like if, if they don't have a, a marketplace present in the West, presence in the West, they they certainly are having discussions about it or doing pilots. And to your earlier point, they almost certainly have already embraced a, a marketplace approach if they're selling in Asia. Right. Like so even, you know, Nike, which has a no Amazon policy, uh, you know, Nike certainly has a brand store on Tmall um, and, you know, they have yeah. their own branded website, but they're not really even trying to sell goods on their own on their own website. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, these global brands are very familiar with this model, especially if they've been they've been doing business in Asia. Absolutely. Yep. I, I sort of chuckled when I read your report, uh, you know, talking about eliminating middlemen, because I, I feel like I've had a bunch of conversations with with retailers. It's super easy uh, to identify other middlemen, uh, much harder than it is to realize you yourself are a middleman. Um, so I feel like I've talked to a bunch of these retailers that talked about, oh, yeah, all the middlemen are getting going away. Like we we're not going to have to buy from distribution anymore, which is, used to be how they got their goods. Now we're, we're getting all our goods direct. So we've eliminated the middleman. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, but. You are a middleman between the, the brand and the consumer. Yes, yes. Um, so one, uh, you know, For you talked about the bolt, the belt tolls. Yes, it does uh, indeed. Um, you you talked about some of the interesting variances between Asia and the U.S. Uh, what's funny is Europe. For physical retail is almost perfectly in between those two models. So uh, when you go to a concession based physical retailer in Asia, like. Uh, uh, five-star electronics that sort of a Best Buy in, in China. Um, the, you, to your point, they're renting space to to the uh, the Samsungs of the world that are selling goods. Um, and so back of house, they're not really the seller of record. Like they're, they're mainly making their revenue renting space. Um, but front of house, the, that's also the customer experience. You walk to the Samsung shop, which is going to have Samsung's washing machines and Samsung's televisions, or you walk to the Sony shop, which is going to have Sony televisions. Um, in the U.S., of course, you walk to the TV department, and all the televisions tend to be mixed, um, and and the, the retailer owns all that inventory. In Europe, the retailer tends to own most of the inventory, but the the physical presentation of that inventory is much more likely to be um, that that brand shop presentation. And so, you know, most of the big department stores, the the Harrods and the the um, uh, you know, Selfridges uh, and Harvey Nichols and bless you exactly. Yeah, they all they all assort yeah. that way. And so, customer, you know, I'm always curious to to sort of understand what what customers' preference is. In terms of like, forget the back of house, who owns the inventory, but just their shopping preference. And for better or worse, it feels like you're starting to see that shift in the U.S. So I feel like, you know, retailers largely out of necessity, like a Best Buy, they're starting to rent a heck of a lot of the space inside of a Best Buy store. And so now you've got a Samsung shop and shop and an Apple shop and shop and a Microsoft shop and shop. Um, and as a result, like they're moving one step closer to that that concession model. Yeah, I mean, I think this this is such an interesting topic um, for so many different reasons. But you know, just think about the commoditization effect. If you put up, you know, you know, twenty four, uh, uh, forty two inch, you know, flat screen black 
flat screen TVs and one Sony, Samsung, or whatever, all the different brands. Like you're almost commoditizing the product now. You can argue that that, that kind of TV with the electronic, uh, with the, how fast the, the electronics industry evolves is kind of a bit of a commodity anyway. But you really do accentuate the commoditization of your products when you when you take more of a category approach. Now, I think there are categories where the consumer, you know, to me, it's really interesting. Why did um, why did the consumer electronics and linens and things in Circuit City and the book in the book retailing industry like why did certain uh, middlemen industries get really tra- you know kind of thrashed by the industry the the internet uh, very fast and then why did other kind of multi brand third party middlemen type retailers like Home Depot and Lowe's and you know Alta Beauty is doing incredibly well and Sephora Beauty is doing incredibly well um, the, you know the auto parts DIY Auto AutoZone and O'Reilly. There are certain categories where the just the internet has not disintermediated, and it just doesn't seem to be happening at all. Um, and there are other categories where the internet kind of came in and wiped it out completely. Um, I think there's a lot of answers. You know, I think there's a lot of insights when you figure out the answers to these types of questions um, that I think you're kind of driving at here, and you're starting to see evolve in the U.S. even. No, absolutely. Do you have a premise for why why some of those industries have been so much more prominently impacted? Yeah, I mean, we think about this a lot. Alta Beauty is actually Alta Beauty and Sephora, which is part of the LVMH group, are two of the names we cover. We, you know, we don't cover the hardline retailers, but one of our colleagues, Greg Malik, does. Uh, he's a superb analyst. Um, you know, some of the themes that I think are important is can you know one of the key kind of indicators is uh, identifiers is can the brands, can the manufacturers of brands sell direct themselves, like. Can the hammer company just sell hammers direct to consumers, and the nail company will sell their products direct to consumers, or the you know the the, the milk company and the egg company and the cheese company and the pasta company, and you know you know no, those are basketed purchases. The consumer needs to be able to buy that stuff in one place, um, and, and they're project oriented purchase too. It's kind of interesting. We see it's not only basketed, but it's project oriented, right? You're gonna you're gonna plan your shopping for the week, for the groceries for the week, or you're gonna make a meal and you. You know, you figure out what you're going to buy and you go buy it all in one place or you're going to fix your kitchen or paint your, you know, your shed out back. Um, you know, makeup and beauty, a lot of the same things. And there's a technical element, too. So it's a combination of can the brand sell direct? Can, you know, is it at this kind of basket of purchases where the products are really, you know, related to each other um, or even interrelated? Um, and then, uh, um, you know, the last piece is there a technical element because it's kind of that Home Depot, Lowe's, like, you, need, you know, AutoZone, O'Reilly, there's a technical component or service element to the where you need that middleman retailer who's got expertise across all the different brands and product categories. Whereas clothing and fashion and luxury goods, it's quite a bit different where the brands can really stand alone. I would say maybe in the footwear categories, the the the, the especially women's footwear and boots and things like that, there's a strong desire to have kind of all the products in one, all the different brands and products in one place. Um, and there's other categories uh, where it's you know it's really it, the consumer, I think, is intuitively indifferent to whether you're looking at it in a brand standpoint or a category standpoint. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you a prediction for for uh, our our near to medium term. There, there are a bunch of categories that right now I feel like are totally protected based on that sort of back, uh, basketed need. Um, but those are purchases that in the near future might shift from uh, explicit to implicit. So Internet of Things suddenly makes a bunch of the dry goods in your kitchen things that your kitchen can order without you. 
Um, and in the yeah. current world, I don't want to go to 10 stores to find all those dry goods. I want to get them all in one shopping cart. But in a world where my appliances are doing that shopping for me, and maybe they're you know running reverse auctions to get the best price on all that stuff, I'm perfectly fine with my my dishwasher ordering its soap from somebody completely different than my uh, Brita water filter or those sorts of things. So I, yeah, yeah, that's that's really interesting. I totally agree with you. I mean, if the technology is there, that that you know that could that could send it back in the other direction again. It's a really good point. Uh, I, I, w- I will uh, point out there, there are some interesting tests going on in physical uh, space right now. Uh, Scott and I talked a little bit about a retailer I visited on the West Coast last week called Beta, and they're, uh, they're spelled B-A-T-A. Um, and they are, they are literally designed – it's a bunch of ex-Amazon Nest guys that started a retail store. And the whole concept was we're a physical retail concession model. We're, we're going to build a – a perfect store to then rent slots to, to third party products um, and allow those, those manufacturers to sell, sell direct in the space. And so far it seems like it's, it's going pretty well. So that, that's sort of a, in, an interesting company to follow uh, vis-a-vis your premise. Yeah, no, that's interesting. I'll definitely take a look at that. I'm, I mean, we're always looking for new ideas or people trying different things. And, you know, as we're all trying to figure out where the, how this landscape is changing, where it's going. Yeah, so, so one of the conclusions um, that you kind of come to after going through this concession model is Ron Johnson was right. Tell us tell us a little bit about that. Um, Jason and I, I think, know the story, but I think listeners would enjoy kind of the, the cycle that he went through there. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, he was right, sort of. Um, <laughs> He's right-ish. You know, he, 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 <laughs> he was right-ish. Um, you know, probably 10 years too early, you know, five, 10 years too early. I think is one where area where he was wrong. Um, I think he was at the wrong place too. I don't think the idea of doing those shops and brand shops and trying to create a marketplace. Um, I don't know that it's as easy to execute at, at the price point at the consumer, you know, demographic that, 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 that was the core of JC Penney. Um, you know, I think if he had come along and kind of maybe been taking over a Macy's, for example, which has both the Macy's and Bloomingdale's platforms, which are higher end, there's more embedded markups. And I think, you know, if he had embraced more of a concession model too, I think he was still wanted JCPenney to be a marketplace, but he also wanted it to still be the arbiter. Um, and, uh, you know, order goods from, 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 from brands and manufacturers and, you know, do the merchandise assortments and line planning and, uh, you know, taking all that inventory risk, et cetera, et cetera. So I think, you know, he was still thinking about that traditional wholesale model. Um, I think JCPenney was the wrong place to do it, and he was just a little bit too early. Um, but he was definitely on, the, I think, on to the right path, especially when you start to think about the real estate value, you know, of these of these companies, and you know how much of the asset value is really just the underlying real estate. You know, because when you think back to when malls were being built. The, you know, the landlords had to attract these kind of anchors, so so to speak, because the anchors would anchor the mall. And, and, and once you knew Macy's was going to be in the mall, all these specialty retailers, these little guys would come in and start to pay you know real rents because they knew Macy's would draw traffic. So the, the landlords gave the department stores basically free rent for, for life. So, you know, there's this underlying real estate value. And I think he was on to the right idea of, you know, I think the most sustainable way to unlock that value, which is more of a shop and shop model. I just think it was just a little bit short of where he needed to be. Yeah. So, so let's kind of uh, you know, draw the retail conversation to a close. What, what happens to retail? So it sounds like you think some, some will survive and kind of become these marketplaces. Um, 
you know, any, any winners, losers you want to call there. And, um, you know, the, since, since your report came out, JC Penney announced they're going to close over a hundred stores before your report came out. I think Macy's was already closing like 140 stores. So those two guys are in pain. Sears seems like it's not, not doing very well. And any kind of call on what that looks like? Yeah. I mean, I, I, it's, 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 you know, it's not simple. I don't think it's as simple as saying, Oh, you know, we're, um, you know, twenty five percent of the physical retail space and 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 uh, industrialized markets like the U.S. and Europe are going to need to be closed over time, and it can be repurposed for other things. And because that's how much it's going to be. I, like, I, I I don't think it's something simple like that. I think behavior is changing. The consumer's perception of value is changing. The consumer perception of brand is changing. Um, you, you know, how we get information, how we share information, how we be cool. You know, what makes us cool, and how we're you know, try to perceive to be as, to, to be cool. Um, those uh, modalities are changing. So, you know, to me, it's really far-reaching and very unpredictable. And there's too many different forces at play here. And the consumers don't know, uh, you know, how things how they're going to be behaving in a few years. And certainly not the the retailers um, or the brands at this point. We're still just trying to gather information and figure out where the cheese is moving to. Um, but you know, to me, it's going to be a you know a trend of specialization you know i think the the era of big broad ubiquitous brands and retailers is is coming to an end you know when everyone's got pictures of everybody you know constantly all day and their activities you you can't all be doing the same things and wearing the same things so i think things are just generally going to be a little bit more specialized maybe we'll pay a premium for kind of technical you know high quality or high style whatever the whatever value it is how you define value i think people pay a premium for specialized products and services um and you're seeing that in the marketplace, you know, something silly, for example, is, you know, road bicycles over the price of $2,000, you know, are booming. Sales of those types of bikes are booming. And it's not like cycling is necessarily this, you know, new activity is taking off, but there's just so much more access to information and cool products. You know, if you're a cycling enthusiast that you just never had access to before there was such a thing called the internet. So you know, to me, it's, it's it, there's too many factors to try to figure out how this is going to play out. I know there's going to be massive amounts of change. The consumer has a perception of value that's going to be much more rigorous for brands and retailers to, to, to hurdle. Um, innovation is going to become more important. Frequency. Consumers get so bored so easily in this environment where you can see, you know, Chanel's spring line. You, the, the minute it comes out, you can look at the whole line in less than five minutes and then you have to wait till fall till the next line comes out. So the need for kind of constant newness and frequency to keep the consumer's intention um, and continually kind of surprise them and keep them coming back is very different than the old kind of seasonal fall and spring um, algorithm of retail. Um, you know, profits, you know, investment in digital and social media, you know, profits are going to be squeezed for a period of years here. There's going to be bankruptcies and models that go, that go and some that don't change and, and get kicked out and some that are able to evolve and stay relevant. Um, in the end, you know, the content producers, the producers of original, authentic, um, uh, innovative content are going to become more closely connected to the consumers of that content. And it's going to be a very powerful uh, uh, value driver for those types of companies. But this period between now and then could be multi-years in nature, and it's, you know, it's very predict- unpredictable how it's going to play out between now and then. That's a terrific segue to sort of talk about the impact on the – on brands versus retailers. So I, I know you you follow more more brands. Um, the the retailer is the 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 middleman that's getting disintermediated here in the long run. So so they have to dramatically uh, reinvent themselves. 
Um, but you talk a lot about the, you know, these brands today are, are addicted to that, that, uh, supply chain, um, you know, and so they're going to have some at least near and medium term impacts from that. Can, uh, like in the long run, do you, do you see most of the brands we're familiar with surviving because like they do have original content in the form of their products? I mean, to the extent that they embrace these changes and understand them and think about, you know, the old model, which is, you know, create a designer label, get a logo, do some designs, put it on some famous people, take some pictures of really beautiful people and with a great photographer and put it in magazine, fancy magazines and glossy paper. And then you slap that logo on, 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 you know, decent quality products made cheap in the far East and put a huge markup on it. You know, six X, as you mentioned before, um, that just isn't going to cut it anymore. That that model worked and worked really well for a long time, especially when the dollar was falling because so much of the production of these products is produced in dollars. So when the dollar was getting cheaper, basically the cost of goods was getting cheaper. So there was these companies were globalizing. They were able to kind of slap, use one logo and put it on all different types of products. And that was good enough. Um, and man, things have changed really quickly since then. And, you know, again, that hurdle to create value for the consumer, both from a you know, the, the, the quality of the product, you, 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 the quality and the investment you make in the product versus the price you're trying to sell it at that, that, you know, how much, how much is your ultimate markup? Um, you know, the innovation in the product, the uniqueness of that product. Um, you know, these are going to be, you know, critical differentiators. These brands are going to have to figure out to be relevant when the time comes and the industry kind of stabilizes. And we see that clear path of what the uh, operating model is going to be that these companies are going to have to pursue, but that, you know, just because you're a great brand today doesn't mean you're going to be a great brand in five years when this kind of digital revolution is we're much deeper into it. You have to stay on top of, you know, your brand, your customers, those consumer insights, segmenting the market, developing, you know, relevant innovations, bringing constant newness to the market. Don't, you know, rely on four seasons a year, but, you know, a company like TJ Maxx and, and it has new product in all 3000 of their stores, you know, once a, you know, once a day or sometimes twice a day. And, and you know, that, that's a huge differentiator for, versus department stores who kind of have like you know, six drops a year, seven drops a year, um, you know, real, you know, real changes in their, in the merchandise. So um, there's just a whole slew of things. And, and there's probably a whole slew of things that I don't even know about. And the industry doesn't even know about that. They're going to have to be great at too, as we kind of go down this path and learn more. Yeah. Retailers, the retailers are a slightly different story. Um, it's very hard. You know, I, I have a very hard time seeing a path for the third-party retailer selling other, you know, other companies' goods. You know, uh, you really need to be in one of those categories where there needs to be some sort of technical or service element and be really good at that. Um, and you know, to the extent you've got this kind of underlying real estate value, try to figure out creative ways to monetize it without encumbering the operating, you know, the remaining operating company with some huge rent burden through some sort of, you know, crazy sale lease back, which looks good on paper at first, but then you end up burdening your kind of remaining retail company with a lot of rent. So it's really tricky, I think, for that side of the equation to see how those guys are going to kind of play out. For sure. Uh, like we, we talk a lot about like your long-term prospects, if you're just selling other people's stuff, uh, you know, are pretty challenging. Um, the, <laughs> the, I'm curious if you're following any of what what we call the sort of digitally native vertical brands, and so you know these are newer brands that predominantly sell direct. Like they may they may have like ten or twenty percent of their distribution through wholesale, um, but that were sort of born in an era when all of the the these new market forces that you're talking about already existed, and so they sort of emerged with a model to try to respond to those things. And you know I'm thinking of like the 
the Bonoboses or the Warby Parkers or, you know, the Caspers of the world? I think those guys are, I think those guys are, uh, uh, you know, the Warby Parkers and the Bonobos of the world, those types of companies, the kind of pure, or at least as they started as pure e-commerce players. I think they've learned that it's, it's not as simple um, as just not having stores and being able to cut out all these costs and, you know, Warby Parkers having to open stores. Um, uh, you know, it's a complex um, kind of distribution network, how you put glasses on, on, on tons of people everywhere. So, um, uh, you know, kind of right idea. Um, I think those, those businesses have a lot of promise, but, you know, there's still a lot of the world is physical. So just because the world's moving online doesn't mean, you, you know, a, a, a really successful business can only be on the line, especially in that world of brands. Um, but, you know, some of those guys are going to do really, some of those companies, the pure e-commerce kind of brand companies are going to do really well, really crack the nut, figure out how to be, um, you know, kind of present that innovation and bring it to consumers and, and, and the value proposition of your brand uh, through an e-commerce play. But again, in the end, they're selling physical products to people who live in a physical world. So it's never going to be a pure digital um, paradigm for, for, for even those types of companies. And you, again, you see it with, with a lot of those guys starting to think about opening stores. Yeah, absolutely. Is there like a particular attribute or set of attributes that you say like, Hey, if I'm, I'm looking to pick long-term winners in, in terms of brands, um, like these are the attributes that I think they need to have. Like, it, you know, it, is it differentiated product? Like, is it more agileness to, to respond to these changing markets? Is it, you know, ability to generate content, uh, in addition to products? Is I mean, I think it's all those things and probably like 50 other things that we don't even know about yet or are, are not able to articulate. Um, consumer behavior is changing. I mean, it's, it's, it's just changing at a fundamental level because that's, and to me, that's a very natural thing that occurs when you go from an, you know, a paradigm where people had to get off their butts and get in a car and go out and drive somewhere and then find a parking spot and walk in to a mall with tons of stores and spend, you know, a lot of time going into different stores, you know, and you're seeing things you like, but you don't know if you want to buy it because maybe there's something better out there or maybe there's something, maybe you can find the same thing or relatively the same thing somewhere else for cheaper. And so then you go, you know, you get in your car and you drive to another mall or another store, you go to the strip mall. You know, that was the algorithm of how this stuff happened. And no wonder so much full price selling happens because when you find something you like in that paradigm, you're just going to have end up buying it most of the time because it's too much of a pain in the, you know what, to drive around and see if you can find the same thing for less somewhere else. Well, that has completely changed. And so I, there's so many fundamental changes when you go from that uh, paradigm to a paradigm where everybody has uh, instant access to infinite products and services from anywhere at any time in their pocket. It is, it, it's, it, to me, it's mind-boggling to think about how this is going to change the way people behave and how it's already started to do so. Um, I, I don't, I, there's, there's things about it where I just don't know where it's going to go because things, you know, companies haven't even been, in, been kind of created yet. They're, they're going to develop really cool products and services that take advantage of this new kind of pipeline to connect with consumers. Cool. One one final question, then we uh, we'll let you go. The so so let's kind of uh, you know you uh, as a researcher you get to kind of uh, Jason. I enjoy this position as well. So we're in your shoes. We we get to pontificate, and it, there's a lot of fun. Let's let's kind of role play. Let let's pretend you were the head of uh, you know you worked at one of these companies and you were in charge of trying to figure out 
you know, what to do, what, what advice would you give to someone in that situation? Um, you know, if we can't predict the future, like you say, is the advice to, you know, be super agile or is it, you know, leave and go to a startup brand or like what, what advice would you give to someone kind of in that position? Um, oh, um, there's so or if many you went to work for I one of these brands, what would you do? I mean, there's so many things that I think are important. And of course, the things that I don't even know about that are important or we don't know about yet. Um, you know, I think, I think flexibility, you know, a culture of flexibility, um, that can operate in, 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 you know, with flexible, uh, with flexibility in the operations in terms of sourcing, designing you know, your products or services and developing them, you know, a real eye towards segmentation, uh, which is another word of say, way of saying specialization. Think about your business, um, not just like one, you know, one size fits all or one logo fits all and trying to make it, you know, get it out there to everybody. Um, think about more kind of niches within your, you know, potential consumer market and developing really innovative uh, is the other term I would use, innovation um, products for those different segments. Um, that people really, you know, everyone thinks the internet is a, deflationary pressure because consumers have all this visibility into price and they can kind of play the different retailers and brands against each other and get the best prices or wait until all this stuff goes on sale. Cause you'll find out cause you'll get an email. Um, uh, I, I don't think it's only a deflationary pressure. I think, you know, if you, if you think about this for a second, I want to go back to that bicycle example. Um, and sorry to drag on here a little bit, but it's interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, why are $10,000 road bicycles, you know, selling to amateurs, is the sales of that booming? Um, well, think about what the internet does for you know a cycling enthusiast, you know, and, and a cycling you know uh, uh, brand, you know, that makes and sells you know high tech road bikes. You know, the old days again. You go back to that old era where people had to drive around and find stuff that they wanted or liked. Um, you know, the local bike shop would carry you know maybe one or two high end bikes, and it could be a different color, or different size, or not the right specs, and they kind of hoped that somebody walked along who was massively, you know, bike enthusiast or someone in the community that would come along, see this bike and you know, spend two grand on it. You know, now you can connect so much more easily. So you, you really have the most technically innovative, lightest weight, most durable, whatever the factors are. I'm not a cyclist um, that really create the best products in that, in the mind of the consumer uh, for that kind of niche specialization you know, you can connect with them and, and, and many more of them as a, as a producer of these uh, products when you've got this digital you know, connectivity because they're seeking you out. They love cycling and they're reading blogs and hearing from their other people in the cycling community what the best products are. And you're able to put your products out there and think about how much bigger of an audience or as opposed to putting a single you know, model or two in some you know, local bike shop hoping the right guy happened to walk in the door you know, while, it's, while, the, while the, the products are in the store. So um, is, this, is, this is, again, kind of very different. Um, so specialization, innovation, frequency, flexibility, you got to keep, you know, the consumer gets so bored so easily in the digital era. Again, when they have everything they could possibly want in their pocket, um, or at least access to see or watch or, or listen to everything, anything they could possibly want available in their pocket, they get bored so easily. So you've got to constantly putting new ideas in front of them. Um, and again, there's probably, you know, you know, there's dozens of other things that I can't think of because I'm just not that smart. <laughs> No, I'm yeah, I, the uh, good. I was just gonna say, uh, I'll, I'll dispute the not that smart part. Um, but I, I, I think that that's a great point, and uh, it's gonna be a great place for us to end today because 
It has happened again. We've uh, wasted a perfectly good hour of our listeners' commute time. Yeah, Omar, we really appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule to share your thoughts on brands, retail, and your Evolver Die report. Uh, listeners, if you're interested in learning more about Omar's research, reach out to us through the website or the Facebook page, and we'll be happy to connect you. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We look forward to seeing you at Shop Talk. Thanks so much, guys. Until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com.